Uga chaka, uga chaka, uga chaka, uga. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> Stop singing. We can't clear that. <laughs> it's all right. You were less than seven seconds. We're fine. Okay. This is Shannon and Durham. Chip and Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you're listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5, episode 21, Legacies. Hello and welcome and thank you all for listening as we approach the end of the first step in our journey through the TV show Babylon 5. We just have two episodes left of the first season and we are taking a look today at Legacies. It's not TKO, it's not TKO, <laughs> it's not chair dancing. things are. <laughs> Yes, um, I think most people will probably enjoy this episode and this discussion a little bit more than the late lamented TKO. (laughs) But before we get into that, we wanted to make a quick mention of something that's begun to make the rounds on Facebook and Tumblr and so forth. Chip, if you could signal boost a little bit. Yeah, it's a bit of a signal boost. Uh, One of the first B5 professionals who got in touch with us and uh, complimented us on the podcast is uh, former visual effects guru Adam Mojo Leibowitz from Foundation Imaging. And he's come across some hard times recently. And some friends are asking for some help on his behalf. If you go to his page on Facebook, just do a search for Adam Mojo Leibowitz. You can find out how you could help. His interactions with us have been great. We're hoping to have him on the podcast sometime soon to talk about his time uh, working on the show. But if you feel moved to give somebody a hand at a time when they need it, just go to Adam Mojo Leibowitz page at Facebook. And that has been your public service announcement for this episode of B5 Audio Guide. Thank you, Chip. And indeed, anybody who can do something, even if it's only wish him well, I'm I'm sure every little bit helps. Okay, as we get started with Legacies, this is the second to last episode of season one. So things are going to be building to a head that we'll talk a little bit more about in spoiler territory. Did I mention that it's not TKO? You did. (laughs) Okay, just I'm still glowing. (laughs) Okay, so with Legacies, what you need to know. Though the Earth-Bimbari War ended 10 years ago, there is still a lot of mistrust and suspicion on both sides, especially from Earth Force veterans who still don't know why the Mimbari chose to surrender when they were just about to invade Earth itself, and the Mimbari warrior caste, who were ordered to make that surrender by the religious caste, and probably don't know why that order was made to this day. Also, since the early 22nd century, Human telepaths have been strictly controlled by the organization PSYCOR. Any telepath, no matter how minor, must register and serve the Corps or be imprisoned or consent to drug therapy to suppress their abilities. In this episode, a Mimbari war cruiser comes to Babylon 5, bearing the body of an important war leader, Shai Alit Bramer, as part of a tour of repose as they return to Mimbar. Sinclair and Naroon, the ranking member of the Mimbari contingent, quickly take a dislike to one another, and Delenn must diplomat them into cooperating. Narun's insistence on Mimbari guards for the body proves useless, as someone manages to steal the body of Bramer. Meanwhile, Susan and Talia discover a teenage girl whose latent telepathic abilities have just erupted. Like dogs over a bone, they tussle about Elisa Belden's future. Talia insists that she be taken in by Psycor. 
Susan stonewalls, using her authority to keep Elisa on the station while she looks for other options for the girl. Natoff makes a handsome offer on behalf of the Narn, but Elisa peeks into her mind and doesn't like dealing with such an alien mind. She and Susan also talk to Delenn to learn about Mimbari telepaths, at which point Elisa's mental snooping reveals that Delenn is responsible for the disappearance of Brammer's body. Delenn, who acted to honor the wishes of her dead friend, orders Narun to accept her story of a miraculous ascendance and apologize to Sinclair. And that is the episode Legacies, the second episode of this series written by D.C. Fontana, who also did The War Prayer. Is that right? Yeah, that is. And she did a better job this time, I think. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, I think this is definitely a stronger episode, comparatively. I don't know if that's because Chip was telling me this was actually the only freelance episode to be accepted this season. All of the others were sort of spec scripts that JMS sort of handed out storylines. Is that right? Well, not spec scripts because they were handed out. So I think hers is more of a spec script that I've got this idea for a story, JMS, why don't we do this? And this is the only one of season one that didn't come out of the production office. It came into the production office. That said, there's so much continuity here. You can see JMS's fingerprints all over it, I'd say. But it's a great little story, I think. You know, I agree. It is a great story. I have to admit, once again, I didn't remember anything going into this. I saw the title Legacies, and that told me nothing. And it was just very much a journey of rediscovery for me. There were a few things that I I remembered. I remembered the plot with the young telepath, because that had stood out to me. But I didn't remember anything anything about the whole Naroon story and Delenn. And so that was completely a mystery to me. And the end came just as much of a shock to me as I think it did to Steven. So it was kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with Chip that you've got this great story. I guess we can call the telepath side the A-plot, that it's a very strong story in and of itself, but that Fontana and JMS working together do put in a whole lot of continuity, and we get a heck of a lot more information than we had before about a couple of different things in this universe. Like you said, the Mimbari, we now know quite a bit more about their cultures, about the apparent infighting that seems to happen on a regular basis between the castes, some of their traditions. We also get more information about not just human telepaths and what might happen when one is discovered, but the fact that the Mabari, how they revere telepaths as being called to use their gifts, and the fact that the Narn don't have any. It was brought up briefly in... Was it the ga- yeah the gathering? It was the gathering. Yeah, that was that was one of the parts that I liked a lot because again, continuity one of my favorite things about Babylon Five. So I really appreciated that we got a callback, not just to the fact that Narns have no telepaths, but it made me remember Jakar's specific try and how he wanted to get the telepath, and him basically propositioning Lita Alexander, and I was just sort of giggling in my head. I also like the callback to Voice in the Wilderness when Drawl is complaining about how things aren't as good as they used to be back home, that people are caring about themselves too much and too little about each other, which, as Delin says in this episode, Minbari are called to serve. That's a really big deal. But we do see schisms between the religious caste and the warrior caste here. Narun and Delin are basically having a fight over Branmer's legacy, episode title, and mm-hmm. <laughs> we have an image of Minbar being less monolithic than has been suggested earlier in this season, and I think that that's really interesting. 
Uh, agreed that we get lots more touches like that and the, the continuity not only in storyline and plot points and callbacks to other things, but there's even continuity in the production side. Chip perked up and pointed out that the procession, as they bring Branmer's body in, that music is the same music they played during Parliament of Dreams when the Mimbari ah. were presenting their religion. I thought that sounded familiar, but I wasn't sure. I thought, may, could I possibly be remembering this from the last time I saw Legacies? No, of course not. It was from Parliament of Dreams. Exactly. And and the Minbari warrior cast are wearing the same uniform that we saw first worn by Deathwalker, who had been taken in by the Windswords warrior cast clan. So Ooh. you know, it's it's a it's good attention to detail here. Wow. Part of it may be because they're having to build to the crescendo of the end of season one that things have tightened up so well, but it works. It really works. Yeah, I liked, well, really any story that gets us deeper into any of the alien cultures is something that excites me. I, I think I was at first a little bit put off by Delenn's reaction to, to what was happening in CNC at the very, very beginning. You know, we have the, oh gosh, the gun ports are open and, you know, everything is tense and Naroon is being just a complete jerk. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, okay, so Delenn's going to come in here and she's going to be all conciliatory towards Sinclair because, you know, that was really rude and stupid. And she comes in and she's actually being very tense at the beginning. And I didn't understand that and thought it was kind of weird and out of character until we get to the end of the story, which is one of the reasons I agree with Chip. This is a good script, good solid script, is that now we can see why she's upset. She didn't want this whole procession thing to be happening in the first place. She's not happy that they're coming. And of course, it makes sense for her to be a little upset and out of sorts. So much so apparently that she steals a body. So yeah, go to Len. <laughs> yeah. Is this the first time? I believe this is the first time all season when she's sort of been not just sneaky, but underhanded, it seems. She's she's the bad guy, in a sense, in this episode. She is. She's the villain. And at first, I was a little bit shocked and rocked back by the fact that she would do something that would cast possible harm on Babylon 5 and scorn upon Sinclair, who's supposed to be this friend or person she's protecting or something. And I guess in the end, that just showed me how strongly held her convictions were about what should be happening to this great friend of hers. And so, to, And to be fair, she had a plan. If Naroon hadn't just gone guns blazing in this initial setup of his character, if she'd had the chance to get her story out and get her cover out, then things might have calmed down a lot more quickly. But because they didn't, yeah, she's got to step in and be a lot more forceful in her negotiations trying to balance all parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really liked Mira Furlan's performance in this episode, both when she was giving her lines and there were several times when I just wrote in my notes her expression. Like when she's mm-hmm. when she's in the background and two other characters are conversing at that time, her facial reaction, she is just, Mira Furlan was just so in tune with this storyline and with the conversations going on around her character. Yeah, she's uh, not overplaying it. She's not detracting or distracting from the other actors who are involved in any of those given scenes. But if you know what's coming and you're watching this with an eye for that sort of thing, you see it's written on her face, what she's planning, how she's reacting, what she's doing, and when she's recognizing that things are going off the rails. 
Yeah, I even put a bit in my notes about her reaction, specifically when Sinclair is like when Sinclair figures out that she doesn't like this. He's like, hey, you're not happy about this, are you? And her reaction was just without words. She doesn't say anything. Just the look on her face is priceless. You can tell that she really doesn't like it. but She's trying to be diplomatic. And that was a great moment for me. Yeah, she didn't even want Sinclair to notice that. And yet he did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. she shuts things down a bit. Yeah. And, well, while we're talking about actors, how did Sinclair work for you this time, Erica? You know, not particularly strong on either side. There were moments where I was just kind of fine with him. He definitely felt very wooden to me most of the way through. And there were a couple of moments where we had that uh, that wide-eyed acting mm-hmm. thing, like when Narun basically insults him and he just says, I think, wide eyes, I have a station to run. It's just like forehead slapping moment. That was probably the nadir for me. But overall, it was nothing super great, nothing super bad. I do like that moment when he admonishes Garibaldi to be diplomatic. And then he gets prodded one too many times by Naroon. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he has that moment. And then Garibaldi looks back at him and says, diplomacy? You know, that's... <laughs> And that that sort of lightens it for me a bit. I was a little taken aback by the fact that, as you would expect, as a military man whose team got splashed at the Battle of the Line, as he said, Sinclair is definitely being nowhere near as diplomatic towards the Mimbari as he has been with Delin. These are the guys who actually pointed guns at him. He has not evolved Sinclair as he has seemed at other points during this season. He has a bit of a temper. He has a bit of uh, prejudice going on here. And there's a nice little arc where that sort of resolves in the scene at the end between Sinclair and Narun. And that's a really nice scene right there. By the way, John Vickery. Thumbs up. Who is that again? That's Narun. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know. I thought he was great. I really liked him. I mean, because that's the kind of performance where it could easily turn into just scenery chewing. And he doesn't. He sells it. And he just seems like he is that guy. And it it didn't go too too much over the top for me. So he is he is tough. And he has nothing to prove. He is mad and he doesn't hide it. But he doesn't go in for histrionics. The guy you practically worshipped as a superior officer if his body is stolen you're going to be like where is the shy elite you're going to be that way but then he is absolutely cowed when delin dresses him down and says this comes from the gray council and will destroy the star riders if you don't comply and he's like uh yes ma'am he's boxed in he is boxed (laughs) in and he knows it He, he, he he turns in a great performance and the fact that he plays through his appreciation, Delenn allows him to apologize to Sinclair in private so he doesn't lose face among any of the other Mimbari. And he doesn't leap on it like the lifeline that it is, but you can see he's appreciating what Delenn's doing for him. Yeah, I think there's a lot of good diplomacy going on in this episode. You've got uh, Delenn being smart enough to not let Narun say lose face so that she's not going to make maybe a huge enemy of him. And then... 
at the end, I do agree that the scene between him and Sinclair at the end, where Sinclair basically is sort of, I wouldn't say he wins Naroon over, but he definitely takes a couple of steps in that direction, just simply with diplomacy and basic kindness, which is a foundational characteristic, I think, of Sinclair. So from a character standpoint, once again, I'm very much enjoying Sinclair because I like that he does that. And I also did remember that after he fights with Naroon, I did like that scene from a performance standpoint from Michael O'Hare. He's, once again, he's got the collar open, and I just think he's better at open collar acting than he is at closed collar acting. So I like that one. Although, based on what we've seen in the past of the strength that Minbari have, I don't know if maybe we were supposed to forget that from the gathering, but I seem to remember Delenn like throwing somebody across a room. If Naroon is that strong, I don't know how Sinclair would have survived that fight. It was basically just like a brawl, and I feel like he should have gotten his butt kicked. Yeah, there's a lot of things we're not supposed to remember from the gathering. <laughs> this may, this, this is may true. be one of them. <laughs> or maybe Nerun was pulling his punches a little bit because he knew he was in the captain's quarters, therefore this had to be or the commander's quarters, this, therefore this had to be the commander. And if he actually killed the commander, he would be in big, big, big trouble. So maybe he was just being smart. Possibly. Yeah, I agree with liking how things work together with this scene. The one thing I really appreciated in that last scene as Narun apologizes and Sinclair accepts it was, again, they've reached this tentative point where they're almost equals. Narun gives the Mimbari salute of the fist in the palm and the bow, and then he holds his hand out for Sinclair Mm -hmm. to shake, which is a totally Earth. We've seen how the Mimbari greet each other. That's completely an Earth gesture, and he's the first to make it. So I think that's really kind of cool, too, to see where he is at the beginning of this episode and how his eyes, his viewpoint have opened just that little bit to maybe start something. Yep. Anything else on this particular story track before we take a look at the other one that we can think of? Yeah, I think I'd call this the A plot, but unlike TKO, where we have two B plots, you could almost say that this episode has two A plots, really. (laughs) And they so we're do, evened out. Yeah, we, we are evened out. And they do intersect in the end when Elisa and Delyn talk and... And Elisa goes snooping. That was a bit of a mm-hmm. mistake on Delyn's part. If she was having a... If she's mm-hmm. in the middle of a conspiracy to allow a brand new telepath into her quarters, that's a bit of an oversight. Oh, yeah. I didn't even mm. think about that. Uh, apparently neither did she. Well, or just plain lack of knowledge if she doesn't know how the human telepaths develop or how things work and the idea that because the Mimbari telepaths are are born to serve and they know right away how they're supposed to work at it it may be a cultural dissonance more than Mm. more than um, her making a mistake I don't know and Elisa when she is talking with Sinclair at the end about the word chrysalis and how quote she shut it down real fast Mm-hmm. Close quote. Maybe Delenn was confident enough that she knew how to block casual scans. Maybe. Ha- is that hand wavium enough for you, Erica? Yeah, I like that. I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Sold. Yeah. One last little bit I noted about this side of the plot was we already talked about how we learn more about the Mimbari culture. We also get our first glimpses of a couple of other alien races with Garibaldi's uh-huh. investigation. The Lort, I don't know if we ever see them again, but you know they're classified as pack rats. They'll take anything that's not nailed down. But we get a, our first look at a Pakmara, our carrion right. eaters. And I made a note of just how good that makeup was compared to earlier in the season with uh, some of the other aliens that they tried to use. 
And I love that scene with Garibaldi and Naroon interrogating the Pac Marat. It's one of the oddest breaks to commercial you'd ever see. We're going to have to get your stomach pumped. But but I do like that. I like that Garibaldi is serious. I like that Naroon is, for the moment, not exactly being second banana, but they're sort of they're sort of on the same page here. Naroon's not going to take down Garibaldi in front of this person who may actually know what happened to Branmer, but it is kind of fun. I love the craziness of the idea that uh, some alien race may have stolen the body just to have it for dinner or a light snack. Like, that's mm-hmm. just wow. And of course, it doesn't turn out to be the case, but the idea that that is something that they, they have to investigate is pretty amusing to me. Yeah. You know what they say that Narn tastes like? Okay, that line I could have done without. Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) That was a little too over the top for me. I did think that went maybe just a tiny step too far. I was really enjoying Stephen complaining about having to burn some of the lab coats and Mm -hmm. kvetching to Garibaldi about having to perform these procedures at all. And then the last bit was a little bit, okay, why'd you guys do that? I just think the whole it tastes like chicken thing is so overplayed that any other joke along the same lines, I can't think of any. But if there would have been something else, I might have been okay with it. But the tastes like chicken thing was like a bridge too far. (laughs) No such thing. Okay, then let's take a look at the other half of this story with Elisa Belden, the teenage telepath, uh, suddenly discovers that she's a telepath and Susan and Talia's fight over her. This may be why I consider it the A-plot. I've actually thought about this a bit more. Pretty soon after we started the podcast, at some point we were talking about strong female characters and the Bechdel test and things like that. And when I did some digging, I realized that this particular episode, this storyline, actually fails a reverse Bechdel test in the fact that in this half of the plot, there are no men interacting with each other at all. We see Franklin dealing with her on the medical side at the beginning. We see Sinclair dealing with it as she tells him what she saw in Delenn's mind and he runs it down. But other than that, the entire cast of that storyline is 100% women. And of course, they are talking about many, many things other than a man. So, wow. Yeah. No, I never, that never occurred to me, which I think is one of the awesome things about this show that it's, It just happens to be a bunch of women, but you know what? They're characters that I am interested in and invested in, and I want to see what they do. And it never occurred to me for a second that we were lacking guys on the screen. So bravo, Babylon 5. Exactly. Although Chip mentioned at one point when we were watching that he began speculating that Natoth's scenes could have pretty well fit as Jakar's scenes. The lines themselves sounded very much like things that Jakar might have said as well. And he speculated whether it just turned out that Andreas Katsoulis wasn't available that week. So they put Natoth in, Julie Caitlin Brown in as a quick substitute for that. I think that's plausible. I'm kind of glad it didn't happen that way because, (laughs) you know, we do get this group of women interacting in really interesting ways. Yeah, you know, I actually had the very same thought when I was watching it, because it seemed like Jakar was the one who made the overtures back in the gathering. It seemed like it would make perfect sense for him to do it this time. So I was a little surprised that it was Natas instead of Jakar. But I figured he's he's off station. And then real world side, he probably maybe was just not available. But I completely agree with you, Shannon. I was glad that it turned out that way. I enjoyed Jakar, but I really like Natas. So I was happy to see her again. It was neat to see just the differences in the way that each person is handling the situation. And I really liked Elisa looking into a Narn mind and finding it so completely foreign. It's cold. It's very, very different. And just because she happens to be female doesn't necessarily mean she's warm and cuddly. That is not Natoth. 
No, it's not. I felt a little odd about that in the sense of it's cold, it's alien. It's. I, I felt like a bit of a social justice warrior here at that point, watching that part of the scene, because we're all individuals. We're all we've been talking a little bit throughout this season about the alien sector and the sort of mm-hmm. dichotomy between humans and everybody else. And I felt a little odd about how Elisa reacts so negatively to the lizard brains, basically. And then you do get kind of a, a racist line at the end where Tali, I think it is, who says something about, you know, anything would be better than being surrounded by a planet full of Narns. I was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah I yeah, think that's a bit of a I think that's a bit of an off note in the episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it works a little better for me coming from Elisa because she's a teenager. Yep, exactly. She's a teenager who has been living on her own for a couple of years, stealing to survive. So I wasn't as bothered by Elisa's reaction as I was. Yeah, I heard that line from Talia this time, and I was just like, whoa, wait a minute, what? And, you know, we've heard from Talia in the past that sometimes even human minds feel cold and inhuman because she's been in the minds of serial killers and stuff. So I, too, am more okay with Elisa speaking this way because she is not only just young, but she's completely untrained when it comes to being in contact with other people's minds. She's, she hasn't really done it very much. So her experience is so limited that perhaps a telepath who has interacted with many more races wouldn't find the Narn to be quite so cold and alien feeling. Whereas for her, it was it's bad enough she's got all of these human thoughts intruding on her. But now there's something that's completely different. She has no frame of reference or context to deal with it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really appeals to me about this story is just in general, the character of Elisa, how she's written. Uh, again, it could have been a boy or a girl, happens to be a girl, so you know, that that's cool. Um, but the fact that they kind of managed to get a decent character in this one short episode. Um, she's uh, apparently a bit enough of a magpie that she, she likes pretty things. She goes for the jewelry when it's time to steal. Um, she reacts so strongly when Talia gets her um, new clothes and, and, and new things. She pickpockets Susan's link. Just, you know, to, to keep in practice, she says. Wouldn't that have hurt when it ripped off of her hand? I'm just I, wondering. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, but I thought that, like, I don't I don't know, it just seems like it, it shouldn't come off that easily. That just seems like a security <laughs> risk. Yeah. <laughs> but also the fact that once Elisa realizes that she is of value now, because, uh, being a telepath, she is considering money. You know, the, will the Psychor take care of her 100%? The Narn... How much money is would be worth it for her to have to, you know, deal with being surrounded by these alien minds, even though all she's having to physically give up is a little bit of blood and tissue once in a while. Um, with the Narn, Dylan's first description makes it sound like they are these, like the telepaths are these aesthetics who are practically slaves just serving the Membari population until Delenn corrects her and says, no, they're provided for, of course, because we value their service. So this whole character of a girl who's been having to fight to survive... And being given a handhold or a lever into something better is, of course, going to look for the best chance that she can be offered. So I really liked how much they were able to pack in. I kind of wish the actress had been a little stronger in places. Here, here. Yeah. There, there were times when here and there when it worked, but there were a whole lot of times that it didn't work so much. And I'm not sure how much of that was the dialogue. I noticed that she kept slipping in and out of a sort of less cultured uh, downtrodden, uneducated accent versus a more clear, uh, precise diction. I don't know if that was uneven directing or or the actress's choice. 
that. Yeah, whatever caused it, 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 that didn't work for me so much either. I, I just like just like with Sinclair, I really liked her as a character, but her the performance was was rather lacking for me. I mean, she was she was cute and she was good with the um, sort of like the the smiling like you know she was like the adorable artful dodger she had that sort of way about her but the line deliveries really fell very flat for me yeah and that is one of the things that really makes this episode suffer a bit um Mm -hmm. i i think that this should be a stronger episode than it is and i hate to say it but i put it all on the actress it is such an important role and she doesn't sell the line readings very well. It's wouldn't, you know. I'm a I'm a Michael O'Hare fan, um, and I think nine out of ten times he gets it. But I'm having that same moment that you're having, Erica, when you deal with the Michael O'Hare white-eyed acting. I have mm-hmm. that exact reaction to um, Elisa, and it really does drag the story down for me. And that's a shame because. Like, uh, John Vickery does a great job as Narun. The regulars, I think, do a good job. Claudia Christian and Andrea Thompson do – they are fantastic uh, in this episode. Mm-hmm. And I really love both in script and in performance how their relationship advances in this episode uh, to the point where they're finally going to have coffee at the end of the episode after a whole season of not trusting each other. Everything falls into place except for the performance of the main guest star in that side of the story. And that really hurts this episode. Agreed. Yeah, I hate to say so, but yeah, agreed as well. So we should also blame the casting a little bit. So let's not put it all (laughs) on her shoulders. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can we think of anything else we wanted to bring up before we jump into spoiler space? Uh, just a little something that everybody saw that we've seen before when she looks into Delenn's mind and she sees all of the uh, Minbari uh, sort of breaking in to deal with uh, Narun. Um, did you notice what they were stunning the guards with? You've seen it before. You've seen it a couple of times. Triluminaries. Or they certainly, they were triangles. Oh, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure if they were genuine triluminaries, but they certainly looked like it. it. It certainly looked like the triluminary that we've seen before in um, And the Sky Full of Stars, as well as in Babylon Squared, when uh, Delenn received the triluminary, and she's using the triluminary now. And, or at least her, her, her agents are using the triluminary now. I wonder what else it can do. Yeah, that, that was a pretty powerful effect. <laughs> I'd be scared if I knew Mimbari could carry those things in their pockets. Yeah. Maybe. Well, I guess since they don't use gravity rings anymore. <laughs> Let's be thankful for small favors. Oh, boy. My, the only other thing I noticed about this uh, plotline was that the, uh, the the jewelry store clerk at the beginning, when uh, when she's stealing the, the mm-hmm. bracelet or whatever it is, I totally look like Ken Jennings, the uh, former Jeopardy winner and... <laughs> all around funny guy. Yeah, like I was just like, is that Ken Jennings? No, 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 it couldn't possibly be. But <laughs> oh, an, uh, real quick, another effect I really liked when Talia is first talking to Elisa yes. in Med Lab, yes. and they loop her audio. They pre-loop her audio 
So you hear her, you hear her speak, and then she moves her mouth, and she's speaking again. That is a cool effect. I love yeah, that. Yeah, I, I did make a note of that too. That 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 was really impressive, and the fact that also that it sort of echoed a little bit louder. So you got a feel of like the shouting that Elisa must have been suffering inside her head. Mm-hmm. So that worked. Oh uh, yeah, one other thing I meant to mention was the. Um, that I, I really like the developing relationship. Well, we talked about Ivanova and, uh, and Talia, so I like that. But also Ivanova and Sinclair. Yes. Because, um, mm-hmm. you know, during Voice in the Wilderness, we were talking about how it seemed like they were, I don't know, sort of more comfortable with each other. And I think that that continued here because Ivanova comes to Sinclair and asks him this personal thing. And he's just like, you got it. I will back your play. You know, whatever, whatever needs to be done. So I, I liked that scene. It was it was nice. Yeah. yeah, I will have something a little bit more to say about that in spoiler space when I run a bit of a victory lap. Well, we'll uh, and that's a, that's a, that's a, that's, a, a that's a that's a teaser for y'all y'all veterans. Yeah. <laughs> um, one other thing I did put in my notes that really caught my eye this time was the bit of staging. Again, this is sort of you know a, contra- a contrast to a lot of the other sci-fi shows of the day, where they start with the scene where uh, Elise is going to get caught shoplifting. You have a real sort of slice of life scene for a minute. You've got workers with their blow torches working on something that looks for all the world like a like a manhole that they're they're working down, and then it starts panning to the hustle and bustle of this part of the Zocalo. Um, with lots of people wandering about before it focuses on Susan, who is, you know, sitting quietly enjoying her her break or um, whatever it is that she's doing uh, before Talia comes in. I just this time that leaped out at me as, you know, again, just seamlessly showing in the background that this is this one big giant space station and there's thousands and thousands of people on it all going about their daily lives. And that's really important because it gives Alyssa's story some context because if you don't have those moments, you just think about Babylon 5 as being the commander and his staff, the ambassadors and all that. You don't think about the people who live there and she would have just sort of come out out of the blue. So I think that that's a really important. It's not just nice slice of life kinds of things, but it gives you the world that Elisa lives in. So I think that's really important. I forgot actually to sort of check in with Steven after the episode was done, um, but he seemed like he enjoyed it enough. I just thought it was funny at the beginning of the episode, um, I because I told him I didn't remember anything that happened in it, so I wasn't sure what we were getting ourselves into. And he was like, huh, since you don't remember it, it'll probably be inconsequential, and I bet it'll star the telepath. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he completely nailed that from the beginning. <laughs> and then he was, he was, he was, you know, gloatingly surprised, but also shocked. Uh, at the point where where she where she showed up and, and clearly was part of the action because he just thinks it's hilarious that she's never there. He also commented on the fact that we haven't seen Jakar in a long time. Yeah. Um, so perhaps that was perhaps that was because uh, Andreas Katzelis wasn't available, but. The other thing that Stephen said that sort of amused me was um, when they uh, when the Mimbari ship was coming in with its gun ports open, uh, Stephen just said, are those Chekhov's gun ports? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> to which I responded, no, I don't think Bester's in this episode. And uh-huh. he groaned. <laughs> he, he groaned nice. a lot. So, well, yeah, well. but he, he seemed to like it enough uh, once it was done. 
And then this marks the point where um, those of you who are watching Babylon 5 for the first time ever should turn the podcast off until next time while we um, get ready to jump into spoiler space where we will talk about any implications this episode has for the full series. And please don't forget to do your homework, which uh, is Chrysalis. The next episode is Chrysalis, and this is our season one finale that we will be watching and talking about next time. And that's a word that you just heard in this episode. So maybe it's a significant word, you know? <laughs> that was another thing Stephen did was like just gasp and point accusingly at the screen as soon as she said Chrysalis because he had seen what the next episode the title. title was. Yeah. Yep. That. There would be a reason for that. Um, (laughs) As always, uh, everyone is welcome to converse online with us about these things. We are, of course, available at our website, b5audioguide.com, where you can choose the chat thread that includes all the spoilers or the chat thread that only includes spoilers up to this episode. So if you want to stay spoiler free, you can still come and talk about the episode with us. Uh, We are also on Twitter at b5audioguide, as well as Tumblr. Uh, also B5 Audio Guide. And uh, we thank everybody who is following us on Twitter and Tumblr, as well as coming and visiting the website and sharing their thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. And now let's jump through our gate. And welcome back, veterans. Now we get to talk about the juicy stuff. Um, (laughs) Like, Delenn's going to be a butterfly. <laughs> a beautiful butterfly. Yes, I am I am so so looking forward to getting this episode out so that I can finally start sharing Tumblr images with Delenn and her new look. It's been very hard to <laughs> to just favorite them as I as I go along so I can go back and find them again and, and well, well technically you're going to have to wait like three episodes. I know. That's uh, true. Can and I I'm, take I'm wondering what there. to I'm wondering what to do during those three episodes, because I have noticed that the DVDs that I have just yes. have the regular opening credits at the beginning of the first several episodes of series two, season two. And then, you know, they showed Delenn with hair, which is a huge spoiler because I was able to establish last night with Steven that he doesn't know what's going to happen. I thought he had just seen enough. He told me that that uh, that when he'd been flipping through the show many years ago when it was on, he noticed that there was a Minbari woman who had hair, but he didn't know if it was Delenn and he didn't know if she's just suddenly going to grow hair, if that's what chrysalis means. Like he just, he didn't understand it. And I just sat there very quietly holding my hands in my lap and being like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so I didn't give anything away, but I don't want him to see those those opening credits. So I'm, I'm not sure what to do. So what you do is you say, Stephen, look over there. <laughs> Now you can look back. <laughs> I guess. Maybe I'll just cover his eyes or something. Yeah. <laughs> Have him close them. The spoilery parts. Because I don't want him to miss the open the fact that, the, you know, that it changes. The dialogue of the uh, over the opening changes. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Uh, you may not be able to escape this one. And, of course, if he had done the thing that we talked about a little bit on The Incomparable so many months ago – you know, I, in a lot of in a lot of ways, I think that in the beginning is the best introduction to Babylon Five, um, mm-hmm. e- even though the gathering is you know sequential. And in the beginning begins and ends with Mira Furlan with hair. And, That's true. So, so mm-hmm. but so we may not be able to escape this. Uh, can I? Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jenna. I was going to 
um, step aside and let you take your victory lap, dear. I am going to do my I am going to do my this is why we're doing this dance, because I have been, shall we say, a little bit of a stick in the mud over my insistence that we follow the recommended episode order uh, that was blessed by JMS that is posted at the Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5 at midwinter.com slash lurk. Um, and is not the epi- the order in which the episodes appear on the DVD set. And this episode is a perfect example of why we're doing that. In reverse order, there was one word, chrysalis. Mm-hmm. And ne- the next episode is, in fact, chrysalis. Now, let's go back to the original airing order, if I can. I'm hitting the Lurker's Guide right now and taking a look. Legacies aired 17th. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's one issue. Second issue, Babylon Squared aired 20th. Delin receives the Triluminary in Babylon Squared. They use the Triluminary in Legacies in episode 17. And then there's the fact of her building her contraption. So watching mm-hmm. it in that order, she would have had a lot more done. And then the next time you saw her, she was like, she'd be building the first layer again. Right. Also, you know, and this goes back to TKO. TKO aired episode 14 in the, in the sequence on the original, uh, in the original airing order. And watch your back. That's two episodes. That was intended to be two episodes before Chrysalis when Garibaldi gets shot in the back. Instead, yeah, you've got like eight, nine episodes and people forget it. So, this is why we did it. This is why I was right. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo, Chip. Applause. Ooga chaka. Ooga chaka. Ooga chaka. Ooga. Okay. 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 <laughs> Stop singing. We can't clear that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. You were less than seven seconds. We're fine. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, but yeah, as as Chip said, uh, the episode in its proper place does segue right into chrysalis uh, a, a, a huge number of things that happen in chrysalis uh on the earth force side some of it people will have forgotten i think some of the home some of the home garden some of the conflicts that have been talked about underneath because those haven't been mentioned very much the last few episodes so that side's going to come as a bit of a surprise to some folks watching the first time around but on the other side delen's story you're segueing exactly in where you're supposed to be yeah, the uh, the other thing that, that caught my ear uh, with that sort of side of the story was uh, Narun saying, you talk like a Minbari commander. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. It's like, hmm, you don't What's say. Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, let's see, production number 115. Uh, this is sort of my criminology uh, attempt here. And I think that it's early enough in the run and it was scripted by, although JMS helped, I'm sure it's scripted by somebody else. So it probably refers more to the uh, Mimbari souls being born in human bodies stuff than the Sinclair's Valen stuff. But who knows? But yeah, that's an important line. And we do see that again in flashback. Definitely. We also get, you know, our introduction of Naroon, who is going to have this really cool character arc over over the series. I uh, love Naroon. I love Naroon. Yeah, from from going from this growly, you know, mad, almost mad dog of a warrior cast representative to becoming Dylan's sort of shaky ally as the cast start fighting more and more to 
uh, to his end when he sacrifices himself for her and, and declares and, himself for the religious caste. It's just that, that progression, that mini arc is awesome. Yeah, and I'd forgotten about that, that he actually, you know, this his arc begins with a struggle between the religious and the warrior caste and with Branmer having sort of divided loyalties between those two castes before he decides his duty calls him to be a warrior. And then in the end, it all balances out with Narun declaring himself for the religious caste before he dies in the Starfire Wheel thing, which was kind of goofy, but that's that's four years from now. We don't have to worry about that. <laughs> now, we also had the Gunports thing. Let's. Uh, is this the first time that the, the Gunports were open thing was really explained uh was this the the i think it's the first mention and you know they don't even explain it fully you know they just sort of poo-poo it as sort of you know that you know this that's something that the warrior cast does they don't even fully explain the idea of showing their strength showing immediately this is who we are that doesn't come until later but it is the first time that that is mentioned and, you know, that actually had me hitting, just face palming a bit. It's like, you know, don't you guys ever learn? This is what got you into the war last time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I honestly, I, I couldn't remember if this was the first time that was mentioned or not. So that's why I didn't say anything about it before our, our spoiler space yeah. episode. Because it's it's one of those things that comes up in enough episodes that I wasn't, I, I couldn't remember where, where we first heard about it. So I guess this is it. I think it is. And so it doesn't, it, it doesn't literally tell you, we don't literally learn that the gun ports were open on the original um, encounter between Earth Force and the Minbari. So it is, it is sort of, yeah, don't they ever learn? But at the, at the point that we originally saw this episode, again, leaving aside in the beginning, which demonstrates this explicitly, mm-hmm. uh, we didn't know exactly how the war started. Something else I really liked that I think um, may be foreshadowing for things to come, uh, the costuming this time around. We mentioned already the fact that the costuming continuity between the warrior cast and uh, Deathwalker in uh, warrior uh, garb from the Mimbari, but also the fact that the, the two contrast so much. All of the warrior cast is dressed in dark clothing, black, dark uh, clothing and all of the religious cast is in white and pale and you know maybe even a little bit of cream color but just that sort of declares right away JMS is thinking that the religious cast is the good guys of the Mimbari society while the warrior cast are the bad guys uh, that that seems visually represented right from the start right here when we get a real close look at both of them together yeah I didn't notice that but it's totally the black hats and the white hats look at that mm-hmm. And of course, and again, I noted down, uh, where's our worker cast? I, I cannot remember. I need to go mm-hmm. like research when they finally bring in the idea of the Mimbari and three being so pitiful, pivotal to their culture to have three castes. Um, you know, yet again, it's the, the religious and the warriors and nobody mentions anything about anybody else. Poor downtrodden worker class. Yeah. That's okay. They'll get, they'll get theirs in about four years. one more thing we'll have to wait for yeah of course on the other side of the story you know we just have more progression between uh talia and susan as they they gradually move towards towards friendship and you know maybe something more we'll we'll discuss that when the time comes um (laughs) but we do have again um what i really liked in this episode also i think talia's character advances a little bit more the last time that the two were sort of 
pushed together. Susan unbent somewhat. She was the one to get water for Talia after she was scanned by the Psycops, things like that. On the other hand, Susan was extra vicious in this case, bringing up Ironheart um, and hitting a sore spot. But Talia, this time, was the one who was a little more conciliatory. She accepted Elisa's decision. She Once it was made, she didn't try to push her about coming to PsyCorp, even though, you know, probably if someone knew about that, her, her supervisors probably would have been really angry at her for letting one a human telepath get away. Um, but she's very gracious about it and, you know, offers to buy Susan a drink. So... It shows, like, we're seeing a balance now between their, their characters and their progression. And I like yeah. that. I, I quite enjoyed watching that play out, too, because, you know, as we will discuss as it goes further, like, I I, I do totally ship the, the two of them. Um, <laughs> so so the line where Ivanova says to Talia, we both got a little hot. I was just giggling <laughs> inside my head, <laughs> shaking my head back and forth. I was like, oh, yeah, you will. Nice. <laughs> um, one thing that... Unfortunately, on screen, if all you do is watch the TV show, you know, Elisa promises to keep in touch and it turns into yet another one of those guest stars that we'll never, ever see again mm-hmm. um, here and there. Uh, it turns out that uh, she actually does show up in connected media. There is a mm-hmm. short story that appeared in the Babylon 5 magazine. There was an official magazine for a few years. And there's a short story titled True Seeker. And it turns out Elisa Belden integrates so well into Mimbari culture and becomes such a good sort of ambassador between the humans and the Mimbari, she gets elevated to the idea of a true seeker. So she becomes a respected figure. Uh, So much so, and even more interestingly, in that short story, she winds up working uh, a lot with the Narn. So somewhere along the line, she she got herself (laughs) used to other other races. Wow. She winds up working, working with them. Nice. That makes me really happy because I, I, you know, performance not so great, but I really liked the character and the idea behind her. And I would have appreciated seeing her come back. So knowing that she did in some capacity makes me very happy. That reminds me, um, talking about the Narns, uh, this is the, I think, the first time that we see references to Narns holding slaves. And that brought me short a little bit because I oh, hadn't yeah. I, I didn't recall that from any other episode. I don't think it gets mentioned ever again. And I felt really I felt really icky about that. And it wasn't until uh, a few minutes before we started recording that I remembered what that well, you know, if they do have slaves, that's not the first race in the uh, Babylon 5 universe that's been shown to do that. Centauri, hello. It still made me feel a little weird seeing that reference. Yeah, uh, I think that's out of step somewhat because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not remembering any other reference of all. I mean, you know, yes, the Narn are fighting tooth and nail to, you know, gain enough power to be able to defend themselves so that they, you know, never suffer like the, again like they did under the Centauri. But, yeah, I don't remember any other instances of of them actually... I don't even remember instances of them actually conquering other races. That now that I think about it, I'd have to start looking up and looking behind the scenes because I I just remember them, you know, defending their territory but not necessarily expanding. Well, no, I think there there have been lots of references to them expanding, and obviously right. they attacked the Ragesh three uh, without right. provocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can assume that they did some of that with other races. Uh, you've you know it. If if you're expanding, if you're not uh, expanding to 
previously uninhabited worlds, you're expanding at somebody else's expense, but it's not been a big part of the story. So, yeah, the the thought of the Narn having slaves sort of makes them seem a little more rapacious even than the story to this point has said. And I think that that is uh, – it's something that you – sort of accept for the Centauri because there's hidebound traditionalists, that sort of thing. The Narn are scrappy up-and-comers at this point, so it's a little <laughs> harder for me to think of it in those terms. Yeah, it definitely... I, I guess I just didn't really notice it because I was just kind of into the story and it slid by, but now that you point it out, it does... It it feels wrong in my brain to think of, of the Narn as, as taking slaves, but maybe... And maybe that's just me thinking about what Jakar becomes later in his sort of personal transformation and how that would be a thing that would be completely antithetical to, to what he would do. And perhaps I'm just projecting that onto all the rest of Narn, which it, in, certainly at this <laughs> point would be completely wrong because even Jakar hasn't, hasn't reached that sort of right. that point. So well, I don't that, know. that's a really good point because at, by the end of the series, the Narn, not just Jakar, but the Narn in, as a whole pretty much have a redemption arc. Um, you know, think about the Narn flinging themselves against the Earth Force uh, uh, invasion um, in the three-parter in the middle of season three. Um, yeah. The the Centauri never really get that moment. Londo sort of redeems himself, but he's so damaged by that point that, you know, so it's still easier for me to think of the Centauri as being a slaveholding culture than it is the Narn. Yeah, maybe maybe this is just, you know, this is where Narn has to start out in order to make that redemptive arc really work. They have to start out being pretty bad, and then it makes it all the more effective at the end. And I just didn't notice how bad they were to start with uh, the first time around. Yeah, I was trying to think of uh, anything else. Uh, this was something I think I'd meant to mention um in the first part when I was talking about the um, the presence of the female characters and um, how strongly that played, uh, we get another little hint in, I don't think a huge amount is done with it later, but the fact that Delenn points out that Bramer was of the religious cast on his mother's side, and that takes precedence. Oh, the yeah, fact I had that, that in my notes, too. Yeah, mm -hmm. the fact that the um, Mimbari's the Mimbari are enough of a matriarchal society that your cast is determined by who your mother was rather than your father. I thought that was a really neat bit, and I'm not sure they do a whole lot with it later on, which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, are there any other women on the Grey Council? Well, uh, how we would tell. we know? <laughs> yeah, well, with, yeah. The, with those robes, it's hard to tell. I think there's a couple of them in scenes that are short enough that you could assume they're women. Um, but there's, in general, we don't see a whole lot of Mimbari women overall. There's a few in the background. We saw a female warrior at one point in the parade in this episode. We've got the poet, uh, Shah Mayan. But for a race that seems to be pretty much balanced in, in the sexes, in theory... There's not as much of it on screen as I would like. Maybe that is a direct result of the fact that the action in this show mostly takes place on Babylon 5. Perhaps the the women actually have so much power that they don't need to leave Mimbar and <laughs> scuttle around on this, you know, spinning tin can in the middle of nowhere. Uh, they have, you know, enough clout that they can just stay home and do whatever they want. Yeah, it's even possible. weird for Delenn to be there because she has so much power that, you know, why yeah. would she just be on this little station? Ordinarily, yeah. Erica, I'm in awe of your hand wavium, but I'm a little concerned about your chance for developing tendonitis here. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. 
Now, I, I was trying to rack my brain. I'm actually, I think we see a few more women in the background once the Shadow War kicks in and the White Stars, uh, the contingents um, manning yes. the White Stars. I think there's more Mimbari women in the background there now that I think about it. I'll have to pay attention. Can we think of anything else we wanted to talk about? I'm good. I'm good. Good episode. Yeah. Can't wait for Chrysalis. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Stephen actually is is tempted to. We're not going to be able to. Little inside baseball. We're recording this before we before Chip and I leave for the Doctor Who convention. Um, so we'll be gone for a while, and Stephen, of course, is going too. And he is tempted to watch Chrysalis <laughs> before we go, even though we won't be recording until after. And I'd probably have to watch it a second time to refresh my memory. But he just he really wants to get to it, and he doesn't want to have to wait three weeks to just to be able to watch it. So, so I is like it better. Is it better to wait now for Chrysalis or to wait for after? After Chrysalis and the next episode. See, that is the question. <laughs> that is the question. I think he's going to be he's going to be sunk either way. Yeah, that's true. Well, as always, we thank everyone for listening to our podcast and following us on our rewatch of Babylon Five. Uh, we look forward to talking Chrysalis the next time uh, when we get back together. And until then, find us again on social media, our website, b5audioguide.com, our Twitters and Tumblers at b5audioguide. And until then, this is Shannon in Durham, Chip in Durham, and Erica in Edmonton. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>